right, time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. It's Monday, September 29th. First day of our new schedule here at uh, Pirate Christian Radio. I'm batting cleanup. <laughs> I think they just kind of figured, you know, Roseboro's just no good at hitting his hard breaks and can't seem to end his show on time. And since he owns the Pirate Christian Radio Station, we can't tell him, you know, hey, dude, you know, um, this just isn't working. <laughs> so they basically said, you know, we got an idea. Let's just throw him at the last part of the day. We'll make him the cleanup hitter. And then if he wants to go over, there's no other shows that come after him. You know, who cares? <laughs> Yeah, we can go into extra innings. We can do a double header, using John's analogy there. Oh man! Well, the uh, controversy regarding the postcard continues, but uh, we're going to hit back with a different thing. And then uh, this is a great program we got lined up today. We're going to talk about Rowan Williams, who is the Archbishop of Canterbury. This is one strange nut. This is the guy who a year ago was basically saying that the uh, people of Great Britain should adopt Sharia law, you know, because the Muslims that have come into Great Britain, by the way, they're very hostile to uh, the British system. I don't know why they would tolerate people in Great Britain who are hostile to their system. It doesn't make any sense. So what was Rowan Williams, uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury? What was his solution that uh, Great Britain should adopt Sharia law and... Guess what? They did. Great Britain now has Sharia law for you know, and Sharia law courts set up specifically for the Muslim in- immigrants that are there. And uh, yeah, that not that great? Well, the uh, Archbishop of Canterbury now is basically saying, hey, you know, um, he believes in Marian apparitions, the, appar- <laughs> the visions of the Virgin Mary. He actually is uh, hip to these things and thinks that they're real. True. I'm, I've got uh, from the UK a, a publication called Mail Online, not Mail, M-A-L-E. You know, it's <laughs> M-A-I-L online. Yeah, it's not male or female. It's it's some other kind of male. The Archbishop of Canterbury, Dr. Rowan, Rowan Williams, also known as Super Space Cadet Man. Um, yeah, no, he's not Captain Obvious. He's he's really we. He comes out of left field. Another baseball analogy. Um, was yesterday branded as a papal puppet after he became the first leader of the Church of England to accept visions of the Virgin Mary at Lourdes as historical fact. Right on. Yeah. Woohoo. He asserted that 18 visions of Our Lady allegedly experienced by Bernadette Suburius in 1858 were true. His words shocked millions of Protestants worldwide because they not only signified a break with Protestant teaching on the Virgin Mary, but also Dr. Williams' personal acceptance of Catholic doctrine of the Immaculate Conception, which is explicitly linked to those Marian apparitions. In other words, uh, he's if you're not familiar with the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception, it, it, it goes something like this. You see, in order for Mary to be worthy of being the mother of God, this is interesting language up to this point, um, she couldn't have sinned. So she was sinless 
up to at, absolutely up to the point where she, you know, where the Holy Spirit uh, put Jesus into her womb. So, you know, that that made her worthy to be the mother of God, the immaculate conception. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, then, well, if if Mary was sinless in in then my question is uh was Mary's mother sinless and you know in order to be worthy to carry the mother of God in her womb? <sighs> yeah. Okay. Aside from being completely biblically false, you know, but what do I know? Um okay, so Rowan okay, so he <laughs> in a homily he preached at the International Mass. There, Dr. Williams spoke about the apparitions without any qualifications. When Mary came to Bernadette, she came at first as an anonymous figure, a beautiful lady, a mysterious thing, not yet identified as the Lord's spotless mother, Dr. Williams said. And Bernadette, uneducated, uninstructed in doctrine, leapt with joy, recognizing that here was life, here was healing, he said. Only bit by bit does Bernadette find the words to let the world know. Only bit by bit, we might say, does she discover how to listen to the lady and echo what she has to tell us. He also praised the lives of the saints, another devotion seen as distinctively Roman Catholic. It may be that when we encounter a person in whom we sense that the words we rather half-heartedly use about God are living in actual reality, he said. That's why the lives of the saints, ancient and modern, matter so much. After her words, he was severely criticized by the Protestant Truth Society. I'm glad to hear that there's a Protestant Truth Society. We need one of those out here in America. Maybe, maybe that's what we could, we'll call uh, Fighting for the Faith, also known as the Protestant Truth Society. <laughs> I'll be the Grand Poobah. <laughs> And altogether, a nice guy, Chris, <laughs> the captain of the pirate ship Protestant Truth. Ah, man, I'm glad to hear that there's a Protestant Truth Society still in Great Britain. All right. <laughs> what is going on with this the Archbishop of Canterbury? This guy is one taco short of a combo plate. A couple more than that. Yeah. In fact, you might be missing so much ta- so much tacos in his combo plate. They might actually confuse him to be a Chinese meal. All right. Uh, okay. Afterwards, he was severely criticized by the Protestant Truth Society, a group of Anglicans and nonconformists committed to upholding the ideals of the Protestant Reformation, uh, otherwise known as the good guys. The Reverend Jeremy Brooks, director of ministry for the group, said all true Protestants will be appalled that the Archbishop of Canterbury has visited Lourdes and preached there. Lourdes represents everything about Roman Catholicism that the Protestant Reformation ejected, including apparitions, Mariolatry, and the veneration of the saints. Amen, Reverend Jeremy Brooks. Thank you, God, that there's somebody out there who's speaking on behalf of of true Christianity. All right, the archbishop's uh, the archbishop's simple presence there was a wholesale compromise in his sermon, which included a reference to Mary as the mother of God as a complete denial of Protestant orthodoxy. Oh, man, he added at a time when our country is crying out for clear biblical leadership. Yeah, <laughs> your country too, huh? <laughs> okay, yeah. 
Okay. Yeah, we're looking for that here, too, um, in America. <laughs> Clear biblical leadership. It's nothing short of tragic that our supposedly Protestant archbishop is behaving as little more than a papal puppet. The archbishop's pilgrimage comes just a week after Pope Benedict XVI made his own pilgrimage to the shrine. He was invited by, uh, to the shrine by Jacques Perrier, the Catholic bishop of Tarbes and Lourdes. <clears throat> You know, I, since I don't really know how to speak French and I can't really pronounce these, I feel like I look about, I sound about as idiotic as uh, Inspector Clouseau. Is that your minky? It's salved. <laughs> the mystery is salved. Okay. Dr. Williams was joined there by the German Cardinal Walter Casper, the president of the Vatican's Pontifical Council for the Promotion of Christian Unity. Who, oh man. The <laughs> promotion of Christian unity. And how is it that we're supposed to unite with Roman Catholicism considering their idolatry and their works righteousness and their false doctrine? Uh, how, what are we supposed to unite around? Oh, I know. Oh, I know what we can unite around. Love God and love your neighbor. See, we have that in common. The law. The law. Uh, yeah, but see, they think they can keep it. Uh-huh. Uh, so does Rick Warren, by the way, from the 40 Days of Love. Mm-hmm. You know, in fact, Rick Warren actually, according to Dr. Rosenblatt, and if you heard him on the uh, issues, etc., last week, <laughs> he he called Rick Warren a Southern Baptist <laughs> Catholic, Roman Catholic. He called him a Southern Baptist Roman Catholic. It was beautiful. Uh huh. Yeah. If the shoe fits. Anyway. Okay. So we continue. Uh, he was joined also by an unprecedented pilgrimage of ten Church of England bishops. Some 60 Anglican priests and about 400 Anglican lay worshippers, a number of whom are considered considering becoming Catholics in protest at the decision of the General Synod in July to pave the way for the creation of women bishops. <laughs> That's going from the frying pan to the fire. You know, maybe you should uh, co- contact the guy from the Reformation Truth Society. Or <laughs> yeah. He seems to have his act together. He understands what's going on here. Good night. Uh, just so you know, uh, I, I don't think I have anything more to say here. Um, with friends like that, who needs enemies? The Archbishop of Canterbury, now the the head grand puba of the Synagogue de Sanitas. That's in Greek. That's Greek for the synagogue of Satan. Okay, got a question for you here. By the way, today's program, you guys had asked for it. We're going to do it. We're going to actually, uh, we're going to play a good sermon for you. Pick that thing apart. Got a, you know, what's funny is it's a it's a good sermon. It's you know we were reviewing it before we went on the air today, and it's I listened to it and it had all the great elements that you need in a good sermon. Can't wait to play that for you. We'll play that later in the in the program today. All right, got a question for you, uh, Rick Warren. Um, just got done writing the foreword to a book written by a Jewish rabbi that promotes the Jewish faith. Mm-hmm. You know, so we've got the Archbishop of Canterbury praising Marian apparitions, and now we've got Rick Warren, who is the uh, evangelical pope here in America. Um, he wrote the foreword to a book written by Rabbi Walp. All right. Uh-huh. Let me read this to you. This is from USA Today from last week. 
Los Angeles, uh, Dateline, Los Angeles, USA Today. Who loves questions more than Rabbi Rabbi David Wolp? That's a tricky uh, trick question. Wolp has incontestable faith in questioning about science, history, evil, tragedy, mystery, and most of all about God. They are all questions that could open doors, he writes, in his new book, Why Faith Matters. Okay, now we got a book called Why Faith Matters, written by a man who is a Jewish rabbi. Okay? Uh, There's a link here in the uh, USA Today story, How Jewish Beliefs Compare to Other Faiths, Jewish Populations Across the USA. And if um, some questions had answers beyond what I could know, that would be all right with Wolp. He's 50, and he has encountered much of the tragedy and the mystery. He has seen his mother struggle for 30 years with a stroke that left her unable to speak. His wife survived a rare cancer after birth, the birth of their daughter. Then Wolf developed a brain tumor. Four years after the tumor was removed, he was stricken with an unrelated incurable form of lymphoma, which is now in remission. Okay. Best life now. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently, Rabbi Wolf needs to meet Joel Osteen. Huh. All right, he's so he, so in talking about these things in the past 11 years he's become a nationally known leader of Sinai Temple in Beverly Hills which is a conservative synagogue with 2100 families. He has taught on the theo- on theology and religion and science at the University of California Los Angeles and studied Torah weekly with Kirk Douglas. Before Sinai, he was he taught and wrote six other books, including a succinct handbook, "Why Be Jewish." Okay, this is a Jewish apologist in a real sense here. But he says that he had, that as he lay sidelined by chemotherapy, a question emerged: Wow, I'm facing mortality. Is there something more I I, I really want to say? So, why faith matters is his answers is his answer. It addresses two great threats that have troubled him in recent years. The first is that the only choices on religion appeared to be cold denial or flaming fanaticism. He was infuriated by a wave of best-selling books by atheists, including Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, and Richard Dawkins, all glibly sure that God does not exist and that faith is for fools, he said. What's so appalling is the idea that there is no mystery that that won't be solved, that if we don't know it all, we uh, yet we will, Wolpe says. The other is uh, the threat of violent religious fundamentalism that turns belief into a scourge, he says. The tremendous good that is done by faith in this world is sometimes overlooked or belittled. But most of those uh, who are able to stand up to tyranny and hatred feel that they do so because they are empowered by a force beyond themselves, he writes. He wanted to offer what he has seen of faith as a rabbi who steps into the privilege of every important moment in people's lives faith is all about relationships it's 85 percent of the day-to-day proving the bible is not my point he says to have questions is not is not the opposite of faith questions assume faith they assume there is a god to ask why Wolf pointed out that the bible is packed with great questions from the very first when adam and eve are cowering in the in shame and god asks where are you faith he says is how you answer where i am you triangulate, he says, and you'll find you triangulate, he says, you find your place in relation to other people, to your soul and to the world. You can't find yourself alone because faith is not in solitude. It requires others. It, it requires you to think that your soul matters and it is worthless if it doesn't help you make God's world better. 
In Wolpe's book, of course, that does not require Jesus, although he cites Christians as well as Jews who have found the faith and the ability to grow in the soul to achieve goodness, to work for causes larger than existence alone. Let me read that again. I want to make this perfectly clear. Wolpe's book does not (laughs) require... In Wolpe's book, of course, that does not require Jesus. What does not require Jesus? Faith. Wolpe is a Jewish rabbi. Wolpe's book, according to his definition of faith, it doesn't require Jesus. Although he cites Christians as well as Jews who have found in faith the ability to grow in soul, to achieve goodness... Achieving goodness is all about being better and moralistic uh, way of doing things. It's about life change on an ethical or moral level and to work for causes larger than existence alone. In other words, this is not Christianity that he's promoting, but he's promoting, quote, just generic faith. Okay. His vision of prayer is you leaping up. It is the constant possibility you can experience God's presence to feel God powerfully, always open and available to those who open themselves to him. And what was Wolpe's own prayer through the brain surgery, through the cancer treatment? God, stay close, he says. The book comes with a forward by evangelical powerhouse Rick Warren, pastor and author of The Purpose Driven Life. He calls Wolpe a great soul, a brilliant thinker, and a captivating writer. Warren says... He wrote the forward because although the book is not about Jesus, Christian believers can learn a lot from this candid account, just as some Jews tell him they did from Warren's book. Why Faith Matters is timed to Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, which begins at sunset on Monday. The holiday ushers in the 10 days of awe, the period when Jews examine the past year and pray for a good year to come, leading to Yom Kippur and the Day of Atonement. Well, we've heard all about that from Paula White. The hardest question of these holidays is not how can I be better than last year, says Walt, but rather what will I be like six months from now? So Rick Warren puts his stamp of approval, his imprimatur, his endorsement of a book about faith that doesn't require faith in Jesus Christ, but just faith and goodness and all that kind of stuff. Is it okay for for evangelical leaders to uh, endorse books by people of other religions? Would the Apostle Paul have done that? <laughs> no. You're so close-minded. Thank you. You, you know. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, man. What is going on here? How do you get away with endorsing a book written by a Jew from a Jewish perspective of faith that doesn't require Jesus Christ? This is just crazy. This is crazy. Uh, uh, Hmm. It makes me want to go and uh, uh, talk about what Paul did in the synagogues. I mean, check out how the Apostle Paul handled, you know, he was a Jew. He was a Pharisee, right? He'd come out of Judaism, literally yanked out of it by Jesus Christ. 
It wasn't Paul saying, I've decided to follow Jesus. Jesus knocked him off his horse and said, why are you persecuting me? Right? He goes on a missionary journey. Let me read this. Here was uh, the Apostle Paul's take on Judaism, if you would. He would actually, when he would arrive in a city, he would first go to the synagogue there in order to proclaim Christ. Okay? But uh, here, Rabbi Wolp, you know, he's, he's teaching a faith that doesn't require Christ. But see, the Christian faith isn't about faith in faith or faith in goodness or an improved life or faith that your life's going to get better. It's about faith in Christ, trusting in him. Now, Paul, let me read this here from Acts chapter 13, verse 13. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day they went to the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel would like you to know that faith, the faith you have is a good faith. And uh, what you really need to do is focus on goodness and kindness. And, and... No, no, I'm sorry, I'm not reading it right. He continues, Men of Israel, you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took place about 450 years. And after he gave them afterwards, he gave them judges uh, until Samuel, the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all of my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he has promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all of the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me is one coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which they read every Sabbath, fulfilled, by, fulfilled them by condemning him, Jesus. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to, hand, to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus as also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, and today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Therefore, he says also in another Psalm, you will not let your holy one 
uh, you will not see your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers it was laid with his fathers and saw corruption, but he whom God has raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perished, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them on the next Sabbath. You want to know Christianity's proper interaction with Judaism should be? Pointing them to Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of all of the law and the prophets. And here we have Rick Warren, literally, literally, signing his name to the foreword of a book written by a Jewish rabbi that doesn't teach faith in Jesus Christ, doesn't proclaim the forgiveness of sins, but instead preaches some kind of generic faith in God and, and looking forward to goodness and making the world a better place. Why would Rick Warren sign his name to something like that? Probably because it fits pretty well with the type of stuff that he's preaching nowadays. Not much different. Sad and tragic. Absolutely sad and tragic. Oh, man. Gospel Today magazine pulled from Christian bookstore shelves. <laughs> uh, yeah, here's a, another fun one. Uh, Gospel Today magazine. Uh, is that similar to Christianity Today? Well, there's a, there's a magazine by the name of Gospel Today. And a bunch of their magazines got pulled from Christian bookstore shelves uh, this past week. And why? Because the cover of the book of the magazine features um, smiling women on the cover. But it's a little more than that. Um, <laughs> it's a it's a whole section, a whole uh, magazine dedicated to women pastors. That's funny. The scriptures don't know of such a thing. Can you name me all of the female? Apostles. No. None. Not one. Hmm. Jesus was a sexist. That's what it's all about. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna end up putting this uh cover in the Museum of Idolatry at a little eleven. In fact, go to a little eleven dot com. I'm sure it'll be up there by the time this airs. Um <laughs> Gospel Today featuring women pastors or pastrixes. Scripture forbids such a thing. Yeah. But what do I know? Anyway. Anyway, what we're going to do here, we're going to go on, go into our break. And uh, when we come back, we're going to go ahead and uh, start the... Uh, we're going to start listening to a good sermon. I think we'll talk about the uh, the postcard controversy tomorrow. Won't talk about it today. We're gonna we're in, we're gonna do a good sermon review today. We're gonna review a good sermon. I want you to hear what one looks like so you get the idea. So uh, stay with us uh, and uh, we'll we'll be right back. Um, in fact, if you would like to email me and let me know that it's okay for Christian mega pastors leaders in the Christian church to put their stamp of approval on the forward to books written by people of other religions. 
Email me, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, and we'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> My local Christian bookstore just sells Jesus schlock. Where can I find good material? We at NewReformationPress.com are committed to providing a hand-picked selection of books and teaching materials that educate, inform, and entertain while uniquely maintaining a relentless focus on the gospel. We believe that these forgotten doctrines and their scriptural emphases can not only enrich individual Christians and revive the church, but also address the deepest needs of our culture. Discover our growing library of resources by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt of the White Horse Inn Radio Program including his powerful address, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church, available exclusively at NewReformationPress.com, or the big-picture audio presentation Bible in an Hour by Pastor Wade Butler. Learn the center and scope of redemptive history and scripture in just one hour. And of course, be sure not to miss our selection of t-shirts, gifts, and artwork as well. NewReformationPress.com. Finally, Reformation Theology Made Accessible. All right, many of you guys have asked for it. I'm going to provide it. We do a lot of sermon reviews here on Fighting for the Faith. Mostly reviewing the garbage that's being passed off as Christian preaching nowadays. Uh, And so what we're going to provide you with is uh, an example of a good sermon. An example of a good sermon, and when I talk about a good sermon, what on earth am I talking about? What is a good sermon? Well, a good sermon is going to get law and gospel right. It's going to focus on Christ, and um, when I say it's going to get law and gospel right, that doesn't mean that it's not going to have the law in it. No, 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 no. Oh, it's going to have law, and uh, the law is going to be used in such a way that you are going to feel pretty uncomfortable. You're not going to like it because it's going to nail you to the wall and show you that you are a sinner. At the end of that sermon, or at least the usage of the law part, you're going to pretty much realize you've got nothing, zip, zero, nada to offer God, not one thing. So you're not going to hear the law as this as this naggy little wife going, you know, you need to be better. You just need to try harder. You need... <laughs> uh-uh. That's not what you're going to hear at all. You're going to hear the law in such a way that you're going to basically realize, oh, man, I'm in trouble. I am in deep, deep spiritual yogurt. And the solution that's going to be offered is Jesus Christ and him crucified. And the, and, and the sermon itself is going to actually center on what the Bible, get this, teaches. You, you know, the... <laughs> Yeah. Hello. <laughs> yeah. Now, 
to help you with the context of this particular sermon, you need to understand that this comes from a Lutheran church. I know many of you think, oh, Lutheran, that means liberal. Yeah, because liberal means that, you know, those Lutherans, you know, I've, I've seen Lu- Lutherans who smoke and who drink. A, 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 a liberal is somebody who, do, who smokes and drinks. No, that's not a liberal. No, 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 no. Okay, forget what you think you know about Lutherans, okay? <sighs> so they seem to forget that Lutherans are the ones who started the, the Protestant Reformation. Yeah, but, but apparently they didn't go far enough. Yeah. So um, the one thing you need to know about a Lutheran service is it's liturgical. And so because it's liturgical, uh, God's word takes a very front and center position in the church service, which means that prior to the sermon, you're going to actually hear the gospel reading. Okay. The text that will be that the sermon is going to be preached about will either occur in the Old Testament reading. Oh, and there's a good Old Testament reading, uh, an epistle reading. Or it'll be drawn from the uh, from the gospel reading. Many times a pastor will draw it from the gospel reading, but they don't have to. Okay, so before you ever get to the sermon part, you ha- will have already heard. I mean, scads, huge amounts of God's word in context. Nonetheless, I know. Oh, man, yeah, I, I feel like I need to go and do one of those like man on the street interviews. And what I'll do is I'll like take the Da Vinci Code book and I, I'll just take a couple of sentences from the book, The Da Vinci Code, out of context and say, OK, I'm going to read some sentences to you and like pick them from different parts of the of, you know, of the book and then read them to people on the street and say, OK, here's this sentence here. Here's this sentence. And, and here's this sentence. Now, I want you to tell me the entire plot for the book now. What's the book about? What is this book? What's it about? And just watch them sit there and go, uh, uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I hate these popcorn proof text passages. Anyway, so in a Lutheran service, you're going to get, you're going to, I kid you not, you're going to, before the pastor ever ascends to the pulpit to give you the homily, he's going to, you will have, you will have, been praying psalms and singing psalms and praying and singing hymns and and will have heard an old testament reading an epistle reading and a gospel reading so in the uh in the spirit of lutheran liturgy let me read to you the gospel lesson for this particular sermon that we're going to be listening to today it's taken from luke chapter 15 it's the par- it's the parable of the story of the prodigal son so, uh, and what we do in the Lutheran church is that uh, when the gospel is read, you actually have to stand up. I won't make you do that, though. I mean, this is just a radio program. Here we go. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property on reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. 
I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer to be worthy worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fat, fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, this is my son. He was dead and now he is alive again. He was lost and now he is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and he refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and to be glad. For this your brother was dead, and now he is alive. He was lost, and now he is found. That is the gospel reading that makes up the basis for the homily, the sermon that you will hear, preached by Pastor Ron Hodel, who is my pastor. And um, you know, just so you understand something about my pastor, my pastor is not a great theologian. He's a very humble man. In fact, in seminary, I think he was like a C student, you know? And it's actually precisely because he's nothing super exceptional and is so humble that I consider him to be probably the best pastor I have ever had, the right pastor for me, even. And without any further ado, let's listen to this this sermon that I consider a good sermon, and I'll chime in as, as, uh, as I need to. But uh, uh, if you're self-righteous at all, um, you're not going to like this sermon. I guarantee you this sermon. In fact, if you're not used to having somebody point the laws flames in your face to burn your face off, you're not going to like this sermon. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and there, there's no there's no tiles that are capable of shielding you from the heat of the law that's going to come from here. But I guarantee you the gospel is even sweeter. So stay with it. Here we go. Uh, a sermon preached about the, pa- uh, the the story of the prodigal son by Pastor Ron Hodel from Faith Lutheran Church in Capistrano Beach, California. Here we go. God's grace, His mercy, and His peace be multiplied among you, my dear friends and fellow Christians. This morning I'm going to talk about the parable of the prodigal son because it's not so much about a wayward son as it is about a very gracious father who meets sons and daughters all around the world, sons and daughters who look for all the world like, well, not the brightest bulb in the shed, 
Uh-oh, we're off to an interesting start here. He, it's not about me, Pastor? This is about God? Hmm. Man, what? Wait, 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 this got to be about me. <laughs> no. Well, it's not. Okay. The last, the lost, even the dead. And he holds these lost ones up as his beloved children. And then after I'm done talking about the parable, I'm going to say one practical thing from this parable to fathers that if you put it into practice, you just might make a difference in the life of your children and the life of your dear spouse. Oh, a life application. wonder what that'll be. If you're looking for, <laughs> if you're looking for a life application uh, like what you get from Rick Warren, you're going to be disappointed with this one. Yeah, it's there's not five steps; it's only one, and uh, yeah, you're going to be disappointed with this one too. Because if you're used to things that you can do to please God, it ain't that kind of thing. But stay with us. But before I begin to have any of this make any sense at all to you, you have to find yourself in a miserable place. You have to find yourself in the same place that the lost son finds himself. If what the father welcomes home in this young son, the lost, the last, even the dead, if that doesn't describe you, if you tend to think of yourself as somebody who has a lot to offer God, as someone who is usually first or at least closer to life's front runners than at the back of the line, if you've never strayed or rarely stray, if you make fewer mistakes than most people, if you consider yourself alive and know it, and among the brightest and the best, even if you have to say so yourself, then, unfortunately, there isn't much for me to say to you this morning. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Isn't that what church is full of? A bunch of people who are the the strivers, the achievers, the the people who rarely fall off the path? Why aren't you preaching to me, Pastor? I, I need some practical steps here that I can make myself even better and achieve even more. Why are you neglecting me? Notice what he's doing here. Truth be told, I really don't have much to say at all at that point. But if you find yourself often on your knees, crawling back, broken, repentant, living a life that push comes to shove, truthfully, is a life that's constantly letting God down, well, then the Father in Heaven really does have something to say to you this morning. Got to stop here for a second. Interesting contrast he's set up already. Are you self-righteous? Because that's the first type of person that he's described. He's got nothing to offer you today. Nothing. Instead, this pastor, Pastor Ron Hodel, is going to talk to those who are broken and see themselves as letting God down constantly. Which, if you are honest with yourself and take a real hard look at your life in light of God's law, just in the Ten Commandments, you'd realize that regardless of how self-righteous you might think you are, 
that's you're actually in the second group. The problem is, is you don't see yourself as dead. We continue. There are a lot of ways to talk about this parable, and this morning I'm going to ask you to consider it to be a story about death and resurrection. Now, I know talking about death on Father's Day is probably not a really good idea. I'm probably only a handful, a handful of pastors who talk about death on Father's Day. Most of them are probably singing the praises of fathers. And if you're... Yeah, you heard that right. This is a Father's Day sermon. And this is not a sermon that's admonishing you to, yo, we're going to sing the praise of fathers. Yay, dads. Yay, dad. No. (laughs) He's going to talk about the one father that really counts. God, the father, and what he does. Not you. God. Lucky enough to have had a good dad, great. But not everybody had or has a good father. But if we will think of this parable in terms of death and resurrection, it has some very good news for us. And not just good news for fathers, but for all of the sons and daughters of fathers and mothers as well. And here's why. If you can relate yourself to the younger son in the parable, if you see yourself as good as dead, then this parable is full of pure, unadulterated grace. What? He wants me to see myself in light of that miserable, low-down, dirty, rotten sinner of a son? You've got to be kidding me. This hurts, Pastor. I can't relate myself with that guy. He's a screw-up. He's a sinner. you 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 got to be kidding me. Anyone feeling uncomfortable at this point? You should feel uncomfortable right now. On the other hand, if you see yourself as a living image of that older, righteous son, if you insist that you're alive, well, you've got something else coming. Oh, and another thing. The painful thing about resurrections and new lives, the painful thing about those, is that before you can have that resurrection, you have to have a death. And there are three deaths that we have to go through in this parable this morning, so bear with me. They're actually good things in the sense that God uses them. And the first death that takes place happens right at the very beginning of the parable. Jesus said there was a young man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. The younger son says to his father, Dad... Would you please put your will into effect right now? In other words, drop legally dead, Dad. And you want me to uh, think of myself along the lines of that guy? Come on, I'm, 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 I'm better than that. Right? Aren't I? If your son comes up to you and says that to you, you just might tell him, no, son, <laughs> You drop dead. But 
wonder of wonders, the Father obligingly does just that. In effect, He dies. You know what death does to you? It divests you of everything. That's why we're so busy filling out wills and trusts because we know that death is going to divest us of it anyway. But oddly enough, the father gives his younger son his portion in cash and I guess to the elder brother he gives him the farm and the older man goes out of business. Then Jesus tells us that the younger son went to a far country where this rich boy's life quickly turns into a lost cause. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in desolate living. What's desolate living? Well, you can make it up to be whatever you want, right? I mean, Jesus leaves the details to your own imagination. Although, let me just give you a little bit of a heads up. Your fantasies here might tell you a little bit more about yourself than about the young son. Ouch! Man! That hurt too, Pastor. You're, you're making me feel like a sinner. You're making me feel like I'm not righteous. You're making me feel like I'm, I'm not a good person. Because Jesus doesn't tell us. Desolate living. Boys and booze. Girls or drugs. Gambling at casinos. Spending $10,000 a night. Whatever the details, there comes a morning when the young son wakes up dead. He wakes up divested of everything just like his father before him. Completely broke. He's reduced to the indignity of slopping hogs for a local farmer. And as he reflects on everything, he realizes that whatever life he had is over. He's dead. And you want me, Pastor, to actually think that, 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 that I should relate to this guy? This is killing me. You're making me feel like I've got nothing to offer God. And isn't that the point? Watch, see how he's using the law here. See how he's using the law in the story. And he's told you up front, he wants you to relate with the younger son. Now, just a few comments about some words that Jesus uses as he tells this story. The word Jesus uses to say that the father divided his living between the brothers is the Greek word for life. He divided his life. And the word for goods or property that the son demands of the father and then he so frivolously wastes, in the Greek, the word means substance or being. And that kind of ups the ante. The way Jesus tells the story, the father didn't just give away money and the younger son didn't just waste hard-earned cash. No, the father gave away his whole life. Now, notice at this point that uh, Pastor Hodel has not wandered one inch away from the text. He's literally 
telling you what the text means. He's not off telling you stories about his family, telling you jokes. He's focusing in on the text. He's exegeting it. And the son wasted everything that he had received from his father, including the life that, it fought, that the father had given him. This isn't your son racking up a huge credit card debt and then going out and wrecking the car. This is your son wasting everything that is you and him. This is your son good as dead. And that's what this boy finds out. He's slopping hogs. He comes face to face with the fact that his life is, is dead. And so he sits down maybe next to a hog trough and he looks at his life and he finds nothing. How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and a share, but here I am dying of hunger? Dying. I mean, he doesn't quite realize it yet, but he's not dying. He's not in that process. He's all the way dead. He just doesn't know it yet. And so in desperation over the end of everything that he could call a life, and you can't call it much of a life when you're a Jew out slopping hogs. He formulates this confession in his mind. He says, I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of the hired hands. Treat me like one of the servants. You know why he said that? He said that because even though he sees that he is a dead man walking, he still is not quite able to admit to the fact that he's all the way dead already. He thinks that he's just dead in the sense that he has lost any claim to being a son of the Father. But he still thinks that he's got a chance. He's got a chance of salvaging what's left of a hopeless situation. Watch what he's doing here. I mean, isn't that as bad as our sin is? We still want to hold on to this, some kind of hope that we've just got something left good to offer that we're not completely bankrupt, that we're not completely dead. Pastor Hodel's about to yank away that one too. He thinks that he has one last opportunity to revive himself. He can't be a son, but he still could be a servant in his father's house. But that won't work. See, what this son doesn't realize yet is that as far as the relationship goes that he has with his father, all he can be is a lost son. Uh, there's... There's no way for him to be anything but a dead son. In other words, servanthood is not in the cards for a son of the father. It just doesn't work. But he doesn't realize that yet. And so he comes up with a plan where he's not really alive, but he's not really dead either. He's a servant. But he has to do this because he's afraid. And isn't that how we want to do things? We want to try to bargain with God as if we have anything to bargain with. Ouch, Pastor. You're taking away every last 
ounce of righteousness on my part. You want me to relate to this guy? You've already said he's dead. I can't stand what he did. And I'm supposed to somehow relate to being this unholy, this unrighteous, this evil, so evil that I would tell my father to drop dead and then squander my father's very life. <sighs> He's afraid of admitting that like his father before him, he's gone out of business. He's dead too. What do you do when you've gone out of business? You pray. It's four days before the end of school, at least in the public system. And you've sloughed off the whole semester and your GPA is bankrupt. And so you go to God and you say, God, I'm really sorry. I'm not worth much, but if you could only get me through with a C. I'm asking for a B. Just a, a C minus will do. And if you give me a C minus, then I'll really make it up to you next time. Instead of seeing that we've gone completely out of business, we like to think that we have at least one card still up our sleeve somewhere that we can play in order to make it up to God. And that's what this young son thinks. He thinks he's still got something to offer to his father. Some, some sort of life. Something of value. He can't claim sonship, but he won't declare bankruptcy either. He could be a hired servant, he figures. And if the old man was senile enough to give it all away in the beginning, well, he'll certainly be senile enough to make this deal. Ouch. But all this rationalizing is pointless because up to this point, the young son doesn't see that he's actually dead. And so he goes and he tries to work his plan. Off he goes to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and filled with compassion, ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. What does the father see when he looks down the road and sees his younger son coming home? Do you think he sees a business opportunity? More cheap labor? No. The father sees a corpse of a son coming down the road. And because raising dead sons and daughters to life and throwing fabulous parties for them is the father's favorite way of spending an afternoon, he proceeds straight to the hugs and kisses and resurrections. And it's at that point that the young son suddenly realizes that his little plan isn't going to work because he's dead. He can't, by his own efforts, become something like a live servant. Luther said it this way, I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ or come to Him. So he simply states the first half of his confession. Father, I have sinned against heaven and and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Confesses his sin. It's a real good picture of repentance, isn't it? When Christ calls us to repentance, it begins with a change of mind. From saying, 
I am righteous. I am holy. I am just. I, I am a good person and God owes me to confessing, Father, I have sinned against you. Period. Zip it. No hired hand business. Nothing to offer the Father to appease Him. No contract to sign that, that shows the Father that He is intent on jiggling His life back into shape. No, just, Dad, I'm dead. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And then He shuts up. All right. The law has run its course. Watch how sweet this gospel gets. It's almost too good to be true. He has nothing else to say. That's it. But that's enough. The Father puts nothing between forgiveness and celebration. There's no, well, you're forgiven this time, but let's have some good behavior to make sure that this doesn't happen again. None of that forgiveness that is given by the right hand and then snatched away by the other hand. You know, I forgive you, but... And what's that but do? It simply takes away the forgiveness that the other hand gave. No, instead he turns to his servants and he commands the festivities to begin. No buts. Complete and total forgiveness. No buts, no contingencies, no let's do better next time. Complete and total forgiveness and let's party. You've got to be kidding me. It can't be that good. Brothers and sisters, it is that good. That's The, the gospel is that good. Quickly, he says, bring out the robe, the best one. Put it on and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and get the fatted calf and kill it. Let's eat and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And there is the third death in the story. First the father, then the son, and now there's the killing of the fatted calf. As I look at the fatted calf, I think that this fatted calf is the Christ figure in the story. I mean, what, what do fatted calves do? They stand around and they have one purpose in life, to drop dead at a moment's notice so that people can have a feast. What does Jesus do? He's born to suffer and die so that He can gather everyone together at that eternal heavenly banquet feast that knows no end. If the fatted calf in the story doesn't sound like the Lamb of God slain from the foundations of the world who died in Jesus and who comes to us in the supper of the Lamb who is both the host of the meal and the main course itself, at his own wedding party, mind you, if this doesn't sound like the Lord's Supper, I don't know what does. Kind of surprising, isn't it? All of this death and it's all incredibly good news. The father, the young son, and the fatted calf are all dead, and all three 
have risen. Well, maybe not the fatted calf. He kind of rises as a meal. But then this is a story. It's a parable. And so you can't... It doesn't all fit, okay? And as Jesus tells it, they begin to celebrate. But... Then comes the one character in the parable who never died. Okay, he just gave... He went law... Now here's he gave us sweet gospel. He's gonna give some more law again, because I can tell you right now what he's gonna be doing with the second son. I can relate to this man. I can relate to this guy. I know this guy. I've seen him in the mirror before. The elder brother. What might you call him? I got some names for him. He's Mister Respectable. He is the dean of the law and business school. He's the department of ethics and morality. He's the faculty of the school of religion. He's the head trustee. He's the bookkeeper. He is the man with volumes and volumes of records that he has kept on himself and on everybody else and especially on his younger brother. He is Mr. Righteous. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And I can see his nostrils flaring, and he gasps, Music? Dancing? Expense on a work day? He called one of the servants and, and asked them what was going on. Why this partying? Who's minding the store? Who's responsible around here? And he's not happy with what he hears. The servant replied, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he's got him back safe and sound. And this older brother says, Not the fatted calf. Doesn't the old fool know that I have been saving that fatted calf to schmooze our new clients? How am I supposed to run a business when he goes off blowing the whole entertainment budget on a loser of a son. And so Mr. Responsible becomes angry and he refuses to go in. I will not dignify with my presence the waste that's going on. Someone's got to exercise a little bit of responsibility around here. But do you know what grousers and complainers need more than anything else? Think of the grousers and complainers around you. They need an audience. They've got to have someone they can give a piece of their mind. And so Jesus obliges and sends him someone. His father came out and began to plead with him. If the father, who is the grace of God in person, has been gracious to the younger son, it makes sense that he's going to show the same concern for the responsible brother. But it doesn't work that way because God's grace only works on the dead. It's only when you see your sin and you're crucified and dead and buried, it's only when you see yourself in that situation that a gracious word will begin to mean anything to you. So he's going to work on the self-righteous. Remember, the purpose of the law is to show you your sin. 
and he is using it skillfully here. He took away every last bit of possible righteousness that, that the f- second son can bargain with God, and now in telling the story, he's pointing out that uh, there's there's no self-righteousness that's going to work here. He's taking that away too. The law strips you naked of all of your self-righteousness and exposes you as a sinner. And that's what he's doing with anybody who would be attending that church that day. If they had some self-righteous notion that God owed them something, Pastor Hodel has just taken that away. He's going to continue to take it away. If you think that you still have something to offer God, then the grace of God isn't going to mean a blessed thing. Ouch! And this is precisely the problem of the older brother. He refuses to be dead. And so grace can't work on him. Oh, it's not that grace isn't there for him. It's just that it can't work on him because he doesn't see who he really is. He says to his father, listen, for all these years I've been working like a slave for you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you haven't even given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes back, who has devoured your living with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. All of which, if you think about it, is really a bunch of self-righteousness. And so if the older brother is going to be judgmental, the father can speak a word of judgment too. He says, son, let me explain something to you. First, it wasn't my living that he wasted because I died to all of that in the beginning of the parable, remember? And wasted? Oh yeah, I know, he wasted it. But then you've turned all of the riches that you've got into a god. And what's worse, turning your inheritance into a god or him wasting it? Oh, oh, this is just killing me. Making me realize I have nothing and how evil and wicked I am to have cast judgment. Huh, I'm a sinner. Who is going to rescue me? And with prostitutes? Excuse me, but you don't have a word of Jesus on that one. You're putting nasty stuff up out of your own fantasies and not on the basis of fact. And that tells me something about your own heart. And as for the, I've always been a good boy and I don't even get a goat to eat, nonsense. But you get me off track. The only thing that matters is that whatever's happened, good or bad, your brother finally died to all of that and he's alive again. Hmm. Looking at the party. We're all dead in here in the party. We're all dead and we're having a terrific time. We're all lost in here and we feel right at home. You, on the other hand, are alive and miserable. And worse, you're standing out here in your own front yard as if you're some kind of beggar. The only reason you're not enjoying it is because you refuse to die to yourself and see that in the end you have nothing to offer me either. <laughs> Nuclear bomb right there. Hmm. 
I'm not feeling so good about myself. Feeling terrible. And that's what I'm supposed to feel. And that's what you're supposed to feel too. So that you can truly see the depth of your wickedness and sin. And you're about as lost and last and least and lowest as your younger brother is. Brothers and sisters in Christ, nobody is going to be kept out of the party because they've had a rotten life. Because nobody there at the party will have any life except that the life of Jesus that has been given to them. And then God will say to everybody there, you were dead and are alive again. You were lost and are found. Now here comes the Father's Day advice. Here's the practical application for you Baptists out there. But it's not like any application you've ever heard. And it applies to moms too. When your children see you like the older brother, when they see you as Mr. Respectable, the Department of Ethics and Morality, the head trustee who can justify anything he's done, who never really needs to say, I've sinned against heaven and against you, then all religion is going to be for your children is a law. And it'll be a law that they can't keep. And they just might flee it. They'll flee it into the religious thought that they're doing as good a job as you are at keeping the law. Or they just might flee Jesus altogether. They might do it at 16. They might do it at 24. They might even do it at 40. But they'll flee. But fathers, if your children and your spouse can see that you know you've died and the only way you can live is to have your life hid with Christ in God, if your children and your spouse can see that you're often on your knees before the Heavenly Father offering Him nothing but your sin and admitting that you're not much more than an abject failure when it comes to God and it's never too late to show that to children, whether they be 16 or 24 or 40, then your children are going to know that it's safe to come home. Your children will know that it's safe to come home to you with problems as little as a bad grade or as big as homosexuality or adultery. But best of all, your children are going to know that it's safe to come home to their Heavenly Father as well. Because they've learned from you that their Heavenly Father welcomes those who are broken. He welcomes those who have been crushed down by the rules. He welcomes those who are last and lost and least and lowest he welcomes those who have nothing to offer Him but their sin. They will have learned from you by experience that throwing fabulous parties is the Heavenly Father's favorite way of spending a good Friday afternoon with His broken children. Then, fathers... Christianity will be for your children throughout their lives and for your wife the greatest 
safety net of grace that this world has ever known. And it's the grace of the Heavenly Father to use us earthly fathers to teach that to them. It's the vocation that God has given to us as fathers. So happy Father's Day. For it is Sunday, the Heavenly Father's Day. Amen. Amen. That was a great sermon. You're not sure what to do with that one? Go back and listen to it again. The law to convict you of your sin. The gospel to offer you the hope and forgiveness of Jesus Christ completely free and gratis. Too good to be true. A love of the Father with no stipulations except for let's go party. See yourself as dead and then you can party. I can't improve on that. So you wanted a good sermon. You wanted to know what it looked like. You want to know what it looked like in comparison to what I've been playing here on Fighting for the Faith. That was it. That was a good sermon. So now if you would uh, like to email me and just say that wasn't full of enough practical advice and that grace can't possibly be that free and this whole partying stuff, you've got to be kidding me. You've got, we there's all these buts. You've got to do this and but you got to do that. Yeah, email me. Talk back at Fighting for the Faith. Tomorrow we'll uh, talk more about the postcard controversy and feeding yourself. Till then, God bless you. <laughs>